Welcome to this continuing medical education program entitled Applying Poly-ADP Ribose Polymerase PARP Inhibitors to Maintenance Treatment Plans to Improve Outcomes for Patients with Advanced Ovarian Cancer. This program is supported by an educational grant from GSK, and it's provided by Academic CME. My name is Don S. Dizon. I am the Director of the Pelvic Malignancies Program and Hematology Oncology Outpatient Clinics at Lifespan Cancer Institute, uh, Director of Medical Oncology and the Oncology Sexual Health Program at Rhode Island Hospital, Professor of Medicine at Brown University, and Associate Director of Community Outreach and Engagement at the Legorata Cancer Center at Brown University, all in Providence, Rhode Island. And I am privileged to be joined by my colleagues, Dr. Shannon McLaughlin, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and the Division Director in Gynecologic Oncology at the University of Illinois at Chicago Cancer Center, as well as Christine McGinn, Nurse Practitioner at Rhode Island Hospital here in Providence, Rhode Island. The learning objectives today will be to review and analyze updates to NCCN, evidence-based guidelines in advanced ovarian cancer, examine the rationale for use of PARP inhibitors in the maintenance treatment setting for advanced ovarian cancer, how we can collaborate with a multidisciplinary team for optimal treatment selection and management of treatment-related adverse effects associated with PARP inhibitors, and then effectively support patient education, shared decision-making with an interprofessional team, and addressing healthcare disparities for patients with advanced ovarian cancer. I will present an, a review of updates to the NCCN evidence-based guidelines in advanced ovarian cancer, Dr. McLaughlin will follow me with a scientific analysis and clinical trial review of PARP inhibitors for the treatment of patients with advanced ovarian cancer, focusing really on uh, uh, the newest updates as well as uh, withdrawals in this space. And then we'll talk patient education and mitigation of adverse effects with Christine McGinn. Uh, following this, we will have a roundtable discussion between the three of us. To begin this topic, I think we should just review what the American Society of Clinical Oncology uh, has stated as a guideline of who should get genetic testing. It's important because if you look at particularly the BRCA mutations, they are uh, not only prognostic in ovarian cancer, meaning that patients who have BRCA mutations tend to do better, respond better to chemotherapy and live longer after a diagnosis of ovarian cancer than those who do not have a BRCA mutation. But more and more, it is a predictive biomarker um, for these drug class called the PARP inhibitors. And we know that if you have a BRCA mutation, your um, response to these PARP inhibitors are better than those who do not have a uh, BRCA mutation or a marker of um, homologous recombination deficiency. Because of this, the, the guidance is quite straightforward. All women with a diagnosis of epithelial ovarian cancer should be offered genetic testing for germline mutations associated with increased ovarian cancer susceptibility. Now, although this is mostly, um, uh, right now, it's mostly predictive uh, for the use of PARP inhibitors in people with a BRCA mutation, we also know there are several other markers that predict they will work, including HRD, homologous recombination deficiency, or even something termed loss of heterozygosity, as well as a variety of other mutations in the DNA damage repair pathway, uh, which appear to also um, provide some sensitivity to these agents. There are four available PARP inhibitors in the United States. All of them have FDA approval. I've listed them here. Of the four, three of them have the indication in ovarian cancer, olaparib, niraparib, as well as recaparib. The FDA recommended doses are listed. So this is the NCCN guidelines, um, most updated in May of this year in terms of upfront treatment. We still first begin by looking at the stage of disease at the time of diagnosis. And we also look at the histologies here. As you can see, it's broken up predominantly with early stage disease as endometriod or high-grade serous. <clears throat> um, and this will determine whether or not observation or chemotherapy is indicated for early stage disease. Noteworthy is that uh, people with stage two 
ovarian cancer are considered alongside those with more advanced disease, stage three or four. And for those patients with stage two or higher disease, we are using platinum-based therapy. We are recommending supportive care and palliative care assessment as appropriate. And for patients with stage two or higher disease, there is the discussion on maintenance therapy. What does that uh, look like here? It, it does break down in terms of treatments in the front line. So for patients who receive chemotherapy plus bevacizumab, that is a stratification point. So if no bevacizumab was used, we are now requiring that really people have their BRCA mutation status identified during the front parts of treatment because we will then utilize that to make a maintenance therapy decision. So for people on uh, chemotherapy without bevacizumab who have a, a germline or a tumor-associated BRCA mutation uh, who have a complete response or at least a partial response, we are recommending a PARP inhibitor. And as you can see here, it is either olaparib or norepirib with the caveat that for people with stage two disease, um, observation is still appropriate. And I'm going to leave it to Dr. McLaughlin to go through some of the data that we now understand with longer-term follow-up as it relates to olaparib. If one does not have that mutation, however, you will see in the top stratification, norepirib is an option. And again, the trials there were uh, showing a benefit, which was agnostic to a mutation or not, although the degree of benefit, as we will see, is, uh, is different. Now, if someone did utilize a bevacizumab, that is now taken into consideration uh, based on randomized trials uh, uh, in the decision-making process. So in the context of a BRCA1 one, one or two mutation in whom bevacizumab was used as part of chemotherapy and in whom a response was obtained, bevacizumab with olaparib is an option, but it is not the only option. Uh, reasonable alternatives would be to discontinue bevacizumab and utilize olaparib alone. And you can also utilize norepirib alone. Now for patients who do not have that BRCA mutation, we will utilize somatic tumor testing to help us this, this, uh, determine whether or not maintenance therapy makes sense. If somatic testing in someone who had a response to treatment shows homologous recombination deficiency, we will opt to continue bevacizumab with olaparib. But where it is unknown, or there is no evidence of deficiency, otherwise known as homologous recombination proficience. According to NCCN guidelines, uh, PARP inhibitors are not recommended in that space and bevacizumab alone should be used. They are also recommended in the maintenance space for people who have recurred more than six months from the end of prior platinum therapy, also known as platinum sensitive disease. And here we're seeing the NCCN guidance on how to approach this um, diagnosis. And as you can see, if it is solely based on a serological marker, i.e. CA-125, we do not recommend uh, initiation of any therapy. Um, uh, we would delay that until clinical relapse was known. There is still this option to provide immediate platinum-based recurrence, but I think the three of us will agree that uh, randomized trial data show there's no survival advantage with immediate platinum-based therapy. For patients who have radiographic relapse and platinum-sensitive disease, there is data to suggest cytoreductive surgery still plays a role, but even if surgery is done, chemotherapy should be provided either on trial or with use of a platinum-based therapy, followed by maintenance treatment following response. And again, if bevacizumab was used, uh, we would continue with bevacizumab. Otherwise, a PARP inhibitor uh, can be used in the space specifically for patients who had a BRCA mutation. Now, what about in the platinum resistant or platinum refractory space? These are patients who have disease progression within six months or while on a platinum drug. 
uh, platinum resistant confers probably um, the worst prognosis um, in, in ovarian cancer treatments. And for these folks, you'll see the options here are clinical trial, supportive care, or standard chemotherapy for recurrence, which typically we uh, indicate are, are single agent therapy. What's no longer this list, and I'll leave it to Dr. McLaughlin to get into in more detail, is carbohydrates. They are no longer indicated in this context. And with that, um, I will just summarize here, and again, we'll expand later on the withdrawn indications of all three PARP inhibitors, and they're all in the recurrent setting. Um, for olaparib, it's the use of that drug as a treatment for mutation-associated BRCA-associated ovarian cancers after three or more lines of chemotherapy, a similar withdrawal with recaparib, and then niraparib has been withdrawn as maintenance therapy after platinum in the recurrent ovarian cancer space. And with that, why don't I turn this over to Dr. McLaughlin to present more details of these data. Thank you, Dr. Dizon. I am pleased to run through the data on PARP inhibitors in the treatment of ovarian cancer. There are a lot of data here, and all of the studies I'm going to talk with you about today, well, the mass ma vast majority of them have been published in the last five years. And in the world of gynecologic oncology, that is very rapid. And I know my clinical brain was um, swirling. So uh, similarly to how Dr. Dizon spoke about these indications, I'm breaking the data into a discussion of parts for maintenance after primary therapy, and then parts for maintenance after therapy for recurrence. And finally, part uh, as monotherapy for treatment of recurrence. So jumping right in maintenance after primary therapy, I am gonna focus on olaparib, niraparib, and rucaparib as the three commercially available for ovarian cancer in the United States. SOLO1 um, was a study published in 2018 um, demonstrating some efficacy in olaparib. Um, the eligibility included patients with ovarian cancer that were stage three and four. That's the same for all of these studies. They include the high-grade serous or endometrioid cell types, and they did require a BRCA mutation, either germline or somatic. Um, and they had to have had a complete or partial response to platinum-based chemotherapy. In a two-to-one randomization of olaparib versus placebo, they had the primary endpoint of progression-free survival. And here's our classic Kaplan-Meier curve that we love to see. The headline was olaparib maintenance reduces the risk of progression or death by nearly 70% in patients with BRCA-mutated ovarian cancer um, in about 400 women. The subset analysis I'm including here just to demonstrate that uh, most patients um, had a statistically significant benefit, but remember all of these patients had a BRCA mutated cancer. So in our clinical world, when we were already using bevacizumab in maintenance, we wondered what do we do about bevacizumab and Paola one answered that for us in a very similar cohort of patients the one significant difference being that anyone with a high-grade serous or endometrioid cancer was eligible regardless of BRCA status, and other cell types were included if they had a germline BRCA mutation. So a little bit broader eligibility. They had to have received a platinum taxane and bevacizumab upfront and had at least a partial response. Again, two-to-one randomization with the primary endpoint of PFS. And again, we see an improvement in PFS. This time, the headline is olaparib added to bevacizumab extends the median PFS by almost six months in this study population. Um, I don't expect anyone to look at these Kaplan-Meier curves up front, but the bottom line is that any cancer that had any kind of the BRCA-ness that Dr. Dizon talked with us about, including HRD and loss of heterozygosity and whatever letters you use to describe it, there was benefit across those populations. But in the subset analysis of patients who did not have any kind of uh, germline or somatic mutation, there was no statistically significant benefit. 
So the indication became, as Dr. Dizan pointed on, pointed out that we added olaparib to bevacizumab in patients with the germline or somatic mutation that made them eligible. Next was niraparib. The Primus study was published in 2019, very similar eligibility criteria, however, agnostic to BRCA mutation. Again, a two-to-one randomization, this time of niraparib versus placebo. And again, the primary endpoint was PFS. You're going to see a common theme on this. Neuroparib improves PFS for everyone, regardless of BRCAS. That's what the headlines were after publication. On the left, you see the Kaplan-Meier for the entire population. So again, agnostic to BRCA mutation, the difference in PFS was 13.8 months compared to 8.2. And if you looked at patients who had some kind of BRCA mutation, germline, somatic, or other HRD in the tumor, the uh, benefit was even greater with a PFS of 21.9 months, almost two years compared to 10 months. Next is Rocaparib with the very recently published Athena Mono study published in 2022. Um, eligibility was again stage three and four after platinum-based chemotherapy with a partial or complete response. This was a four-to-one randomization of rucaparib. Again, the primary endpoint was PFS. Now, I will point out the headline first, which was that rucaparib cuts the risk of progression or death in half for everyone. The bottom Kaplan-Meier curve is the intent to treat population, so that includes everyone the PFS for those who received recaparib in maintenance was 20.2 months uh, compared to 9.2 months. And in the population who had an HRD uh, mutation somatically or a germline mutation, the progression-free survival for those receiving recaparib maintenance was 28.7 months compared to 11.3 months. So next we'll move on to maintenance after therapy for recurrence. Again, olaparib, niraparib, and rucaparib in that order, starting with SOLO2, published in 2017. The eligibility for SOLO2 was uh, patients who had a platinum-sensitive recurrence and had at least two prior platinum therapies. Again, similar to other SOLO studies, high-grade serous or endometrioid and a BRCA mutation had to have received platinum-based chemotherapy and had a partial or complete response. Once again, two-to-one randomization, olaparib versus placebo, and the primary endpoint PFS. The headline is that olaparib maintenance after platinum-based chemo for first recurrence adds more than a year to the PFS. So in the world of recurrent ovarian cancer with a platinum-sensitive disease, you could not only find these patients in remission following platinum-based chemotherapy, but extend that PFS to 19 months compared to 5.5. Neuroparib published the NOVA study, or the NOVA study was published about neuroparib, actually in 2016, so predating the Olaparib study. Again, platinum-sensitive recurrence, at least two prior platinum therapies, again, high-grade serous and endometrioid, and following platinum-based chemotherapy with a partial or complete response, similar to other studies in the randomization, primary endpoint was progression-free survival, and the secondary endpoint was overall survival. The headline after publication of the PFS was that neuroparib improves PFS for everyone, regardless of BRCA-ness. Um, on the left, you'll see the germline BRCA-mutated cancers, the progression-free survival for neuroparib in maintenance after treatment for platinum-sensitive recurrence was 21 months compared to 5.5, and a smaller benefit, but an apparent benefit nonetheless that was statistically significant of 12.9 months for neuroparib maintenance compared to 3.8 months uh, for patients with a wild-type BRCA. And then the data matured to the overall survival analysis. In fairness, I'll remind everyone, this was a secondary endpoint. So the study was powered for progression-free survival and not overall survival. However, the uh, results of this analysis were very interesting. You'll see in the um, wild-type BRCA patients, neuroparib had a medium overall survival of 31.1 and placebo, 
appeared to outperform, not statistically significant with this hazard ratio of 1.1 crossing the uh, famous one. Median over survive, overall survival for um, wild type BRCA, but with uh, somatic mutations, again, placebo appeared to have a better overall survival, though not statistically significant. So this led to the sponsor sending the, what now seems to be famous, Dear Healthcare Provider Letter for PARP inhibitors, notifying everyone of these findings that there is no benefit in overall survival for niraparib in maintenance for this setting. They did not withdraw the FDA indication, but they did send out this warning. Next is rocaparib, studied by the Ariel 3 study published in 2017. The eligibility, again, very similar platinum-sensitive recurrence, at least two prior platinum therapies, high-grade serous or endometrioid, platinum-based chemotherapy, and at least partial response. Ariel 3 uh, was the first to stratify randomization. So you did not need any evidence of a BRCA mutation or somatic mutation, but the randomization was, uh, excuse me, the randomization was stratified uh, based on germline BRCA status and somatic HRD status. Otherwise, the randomization was two to one for rucaparib, and the primary endpoint was, again, progression-free survival, as is usually the case for trials studying ovarian cancer. I wanted to include this consort because it helped me visualize the three populations that Ariel 3 reports upon. The BRCA mutant cohort is very clearly the BRCA mutant cancers. The HRD cohort is the all of the germline BRCA mutation carriers plus wild type BRCA who had some kind of HRD somatic mutation. And then the what they are calling the intent to, to treat population is all comers. I also included part of table two here just to point out that um, Ariel 3 was the first of these studies to report upon the race of the cohorts that they are studying. Okay, the headline, Rucaparib improves PFS for everyone, again, regardless of BRCA status. The PFS for Rucaparib was 10.8 months compared to 5.4 months, so an apparent improvement of five months. Um, the effect, of course, not surprisingly, was greatest for the BRCA mutant cohort with a PFS of 16.6 compared to 5.5 months. Um, and the BRCA mutant cohort plus the BRCA wild type with HRD, so somatic HRD findings, the PFS was 13.6 versus 5.5. Okay, this table from the ASCO guidelines that were updated in 2022 was the best thing I could find and better than anything I could put together that sort of summarizes part indications for maintenance, primary or uh, uh, in the recurrent setting. And the, the color coding from ASCO I included here, I think what's most interesting is, in my mind as a clinician is what do I do for the patients who do not have a BRCA mutation or um, any kind of somatic HRD? And um, I will say that rucaparib in maintenance has some options. Niraparib has some options indicated as may use um, based on ASCO recommendations. Okay, now primary therapy as monotherapy for recurrence, we thought this was gonna be a great option for patients with heavily pretreated disease. And you can see I put the subtitle, is there still a role? And Dr. Dizanari already showed us some of the spoilers, but we'll look at the actual data from olaparib, niraparib, and rucaparib for therapy in the recurrent setting. Study 42 is what put olaparib on the map, and I remember celebrating these findings. They were published in 2014. This was a study of platinum-resistant recurrent disease with at least three prior therapies 
any kind of epithelial, ovarian, fallopian, or peritoneal cancer, and inclusive only of patients with germline BRCA mutations. This was a phase two study, non-randomized, and the dose of olaparib was 400 BID at the time. The primary endpoint was tumor response rate. The headline was that olaparib has more than a 30% response rate for platinum-resistant recurrent ovarian cancer, which is a very high response rate in the platinum-resistant setting. And so this became a popular option for patients with BRCA mutations. The follow-up study was SOLO3, and this study enrolled platinum-sensitive recurrences who had had at least two prior platinums. They had high-grade serous or endometroid and germline mutations and had to have measurable disease. Two-to-one randomization again, except this time instead of placebo, it was compared to single-agent chemotherapy. Interestingly, none of these options were platinum. So we have a cohort of platinum-sensitive recurrences, and we compared PARP inhibitor to something other than platinum. The primary endpoint was overall response rate, and the secondary endpoint was PFS. These are the waterfall plots for SOLO3. The headline was that the odds of responding with olaparib are two and a half times better than single-agent chemo for platinum-sensitive recurrence. The actual difference between the number of months between um, PART inhibitor and single agent chemotherapy is really just about four months, though four months is four months. However, this year, um, the sponsor was forced to send a Dear Healthcare Provider letter that reported out the overall survival analysis for this study, which demonstrated a survival detriment for patients who received PARP inhibition compared to chemotherapy. It highlighted the median overall survival for those two co cohorts down here in the right corner. Those who received chemotherapy had an overall survival of 39.4 months compared to just 30 months for those who received olaparib. So again, this um, olaparib's indication was revoked for pre-treated ovarian cancer in BRCA mutation carriers. Nerafarib was reported out in the Quadra study published in 2019. The eligibility was any recurrence of high-grade serous cancer with measurable disease. The primary endpoint was again overall response rate common in these phase two studies. And these are the three populations that they reported that primary endpoint, platinum-sensitive disease, three to four prior therapies, and uh, somatic HRD findings. Here's the waterfall. Uh, Neraparib has a 28% response rate for platinum-sensitive recurrent ovarian cancer with three to four therapies. What I'll say about this is a 28% response rate is very good for a platinum-resistant recurrence. And I'll move next to Rucaparib, um, reported out in the Aerial 2 study published in 2017. This study included platinum-sensitive recurrences with at least two prior platinums with measurable disease, high-grade serous cancers only, with three different categories of BRCA or HRD, or in this case, they describe it as uh, loss of heterozygosity based on somatic testing. This was an open-label phase two of rucaparib with the primary endpoint being progression-free survival. And here's our Kaplan-Meier curves. The headline was that rucaparib significantly increases PFS for platinum-sensitive recurrent serous cancer with any kind of BRCA-ness compared to the wild type. Now, in BRCA-mutated cancers, that PFS was 12.8 months Again, this is treatment for recurrence. So a PFS of 12.8 months is very intriguing uh, and obviously significantly improved over 5.2 months. Also interestingly is that those who had wild type BRCA cancers, but other evidence of HRD had a median PFS of 5.7 months, which was somehow statistically significantly higher than the pure wild type PFS of 5.2 months. 
And I think that actually boils down to about two weeks. So moving on to Ariel 4, which also studied recaparib in the recurrent setting. This was measurable recurrence with at least two prior therapies, including BRCA mutations, either germline or somatic, and had to have um, at least a six-month PFS following a platinum therapy. This had a stratified randomization based on platinum sensitivity. It was a two-to-one randomization for recaparib compared to chemotherapy. And because of the platinum sensitivity randomization, those with platinum-sensitive disease received platinum-based chemotherapy. Those with platinum-resistant disease received paclitaxel, um, weekly paclitaxel with um, single agent. And then primary endpoint was PFS. Okay, the headline after this study was that rucaparib is a reasonable alternative to chemotherapy for BRCA mutated ovarian cancer with a median PFS of 7.4 months compared to 5.7 months, statistically significant, clinically worthy of discussion, I suppose. I wanted to show the subset analysis just to demonstrate two things. One is that those who had, um, of those who had mutant BRCA mutations, a handful had BRCA, excuse me, BRCA reversion mutations, which causes a frame shift that could potentially reverse the impact of the germline BRCA mutation. And the handful of those patients on this study had no benefit from uh, PARP inhibition. The other thing I wanted to point out is that among platinum sensitivities, so when we looked at platinum resistant versus platinum sensitive, and this third category of partially platinum sensitive, this was six months PFS versus the 12 months uh, categorization. These partially platinum sensitive cancers were the subset that benefited the most apparently. However, when the overall survival data matured for Ariel 4, the headline became that the sponsor had to withdraw the FDA indication for recaparib in this setting for similar reasons as we've seen previously, and that's that those who received chemotherapy actually had an improved overall survival compared to those who received PARP inhibition as monotherapy for pretreated ovarian cancer. Okay, we've gone over a lot of data. This is a graphic from those updated deadline, excuse me, this is a graphic from those updated guidelines from ASCO published this year that show us the indications for PARP inhibition. And they have basically taken off the list PARPs for treatment in heavily pretreated cancers. Um, I will just say in closure that none of this includes the input from the patient or reflects the shared decision-making between patients and providers. So I would be interested to hear those thoughts from our next speaker. Thank you very much, Dr. McLaughlin, for that uh, comprehensive review. And now we'll turn it to uh, Christine McGann, who'll talk us through um, how to get people on and the support they would need on a PARP inhibitor. Christine? Thank you for having me. I'm going to be discussing a little bit about um, PARP inhibitors and common side effects and ways that we can help patients uh, adhere to the medication and stay compliant. Um, some, some key points here, PARP inhibitors are used as a maintenance therapy to help control advanced ovarian cancer after chemotherapy. Uh, normally these are given for about two to three years. There are three uh, PARP inhibitors that we're gonna talk about, uh, niraparib, rucaparib, and nilaparib. They are very effective, but not without significant side effects. And managing them here in the clinic is uh, key to ensure adherence. And patient adherence is critical to successful treatment outcomes. So just briefly, what do they do and how do they work? PARP inhibitors are targeted cancer therapy that works by inhibiting an enzyme in cells called PARP, which plays a key role in DNA repair. And blocking PARP helps in preventing cancer cells from repairing their damaged DNA, eventually leading to cell death. So today we're gonna to discuss three PARP inhibitors that are given for maintenance after primary treatment, niraparib, rucaparib, and aloparib. So side effects. The most common side effects here um, 
Anemia is the most common hematological side effect uh, among all PARP inhibitors. And despite the fact that all of these PARPs have the same mechanism of action, the specific toxicity profile does differ between the three. Uh, most patients do complain of upset stomach, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, nausea being the most prevalent, a little bit of loss of appetite, fatigue, dyspepsia, some joint and muscle aches, and a rash and photosensitivity. So in terms of GI side effects, nausea is again the most prevalent and uh, patients should be counseled about the high potential for nausea with these medications. Uh, I tend to use, usually tell patients that if we can medicate with an antiemetic about 30 to 45 minutes before taking a PARP, uh, then we can deal with nausea. Uh, of course, we do tend to use Zofran and Compazine a lot in the clinic. However, I am seeing a lot of benefit from using low-dose uh, lanzapine or Zyprexa, uh, particularly if you tell patients to take it at bedtime. So I usually say, you know, take the lanzapine 30, 40 minutes later, take your PARP, uh, and patients seem to do pretty well and kind of sleep the nausea away. I will say sometimes the olanzapine can be a little bit sedating, uh, so I will half the dose from 10 milligrams to 5 milligrams, and patients uh, tend to do pretty well. Also telling patients to, you know, have it with something in your stomach, like a saltine cracker, some Cheerios, something really light. Um, again, taking it before bed seems to um, work for a lot of patients. Uh, constipation, that's something that, of course, a lot of patients have dealt with throughout treatment, especially patients with ovarian cancer who have had debulking surgery and then have had chronic issues with um, constipation. Um, telling them that Senna twice a day seems to work really well and Miralax daily as well if, you know, constipation is a big side effect that they experience. And then for the patients that do experience some dyspepsia, I like to usually use a meprazole over the counter or protonics once daily, 40 milligrams. I was gonna talk a little bit about renal toxicities. It is um, something that we see with rucaparib and not the others. Uh, we can see an increase in creatinine and it's typically observed within the first few weeks of treatment and then stabilizes with continued cycles. So I do tell patients to make sure that they are well hydrated, um, and if they're struggling with that, sometimes we do bring them into the clinic and can give them some IV hydration. It's important for the clinician though to understand that elevations in creatinine may not reflect a true decline in GFR or kidney insufficiency. And if, that, if the GFR is appropriate, then dose reductions or interruptions can be avoided. So fatigue. Fatigue is nearly universal to all PARP inhibitors and it can be due to many different factors making it hard to effectively treat uh, prior lines of chemotherapy, um, electrolyte imbalances, chronic pain, depression, uh, poor nutrition. So I do recommend uh, that patients, even if they are fatigued, get out there and take a daily walk. I do um, encourage them, even if it is just walking around the block once or twice a day or walking their dog or a nighttime stroll, after dinner, even 10 to 15 minutes show, has been shown to be really effective. It's good for your mood, good for fatigue, so many benefits of walking, um, massage therapy and acupuncture. A lot of clinics offer it right um, where the patient's being treated and it's usually free. So patients can take advantage of um, these additional resources. Um, I usually do get a nutrition consult if patients are really struggling with nausea, um, which can help us, you know, with many different uh, vitamin deficiencies, looking at food, uh, using food for energy and fuel. And then if it is affecting patients' quality of life, and I usually say like a grade three or four fatigue, then we can use psychostimulants like Ritalin. Um, which has been shown to be really beneficial, especially if we dose them during the day and afternoon and omit the nighttime dose, of course, so that patients can sleep. 
Cardiovascular toxicities, this is uh, seen mostly with neuroparib. Most commonly hypertension, tachycardia, and patients will say that they feel their heart race. I like to um, tell patients about these side effects because it can be really scary um, and tell them, you know, if you're on neuroparib, you may feel your heart race and that's normal. And to, you know, let us know about these and patients on neuroparib should have their blood pressure and heart rate monitored monthly for the first year of treatment uh, and periodically thereafter. So patients who do have a history of cardiovascular disease, I do like to stay in contact with their PCP and let them know that they're now gonna be on a medication that can increase their blood pressure. Um, some of these patients do end up requiring some antihypertensives. Uh, so Olaparib it was the first PARP approved by FB FDA for monotherapy for the treatment of advanced germline BRCA mutated ovarian cancer. The dosing 300 milligrams twice daily. And I find that this one seems to be the biggest offender of nausea with about 45 to 77% of patients becoming nauseated. Again, pre-medicating with an anti-emetic seems to be key. Dosing during the night versus the day eating something light 30 minutes prior to taking the medication. Fatigue in about 60% of patients taking this medication and anemia 23 to about 45% of patients. And one unique concern here is pneumonitis, but it seems to be about less than 1% of patients who did um, get the side effect, but something to keep in the back of our minds. Rucaparib, again, indicated for maintenance therapy of patients with recurrent epithelial ovarian fallopian tube cancer who are uh, in a complete or partial response to platinum. Dosing is 600 milligrams twice daily. This, we do see a reduction in the ANC and can cause an increase in creatinine. Uh, again, I advise patients to stay well hydrated. Uh, we tend to see this elevation in creatinine early on, but then patients tend to level out. And usually we can avoid having to dose reduce. Uh, Rocaparib as well does have an increase in LFTs, but again, not associated with a true liver dysfunction. And usually we can avoid um, dose reduction in terms of LFTs, as long as the bilirubin is stable, we can continue. Uh, dyspepsia, again, using a PPI, such as a meprazole or protonics sometimes even Tums, and anemia. Neraparib, uh, indicated for maintenance treatment of patients with recurrent ovarian, fallopian, or primary peritoneal cancer who are in a complete or partial response to platinum. Pretty attractive here due to the once uh, a day dosing, 300 milligrams. Neraparib seems to have the highest rates of anemia among all the PARPs. And it's associated with more thrombocytopenia than others. So uh, this one may need a dose reduction, but I usually tend to check a CBC weekly for about six weeks, even though it's recommended for only four. I usually do check for the first six weeks at onset of therapy. Uh, and there are some drug-specific concerns here, again, with hypertension and palpitations uh, and fatigue. So adherence, if you're not taking them, these drugs don't work. So careful patient counseling and identifying patients who may struggle with side effects early on. Uh, setting appropriate expectations with your patients is 100% of the battle. Uh, you know, I usually tell these patients, you know, for the first six to eight weeks, you're not going to feel very good. Um, and I think it's important for them to realize um, because these patients are coming off of chemotherapy. Um, and they're expecting to feel good. They're excited to not have to come into the clinic as much. Um, they're excited to just go home with a pill bottle and being able to just take a pill. Um, so I tend to tell them, you know, sticking it out and talking to us about the side effects that they experience is gonna be really important. And then they're gonna feel better. And usually once they feel better, they can cruise. And barriers to adherence. So, you know, non-adherence is an issue. It can be related to multiple different factors, the patient, the healthcare provider, or just treatment side effects itself. So some of the reasons are including um, forgetting to take the medication on time, 
lack of accessibility to the medication or cost, forgetfulness, side effect profile of the medication, uh, personal decision to just not take it. We see this a lot actually in breast cancer patients with AIs, you know, they don't feel good and they want to go on vacation or they're having a special night out and they don't want to deal with being nauseated. Um, and then lack of information and rationale. Sometimes these patients, they don't really know why they're on this medication, believe it or not. Um, so, you know, really talking to them about that and how this works and why they're on it and how long they'll be on it for. Um, and sometimes feeling depressed, overwhelmed, uh, having cancer in general, poor mood, um, things that we can help identify and help patients uh, kind of get help with. And then polypharmacy, patients don't want to take another pill. Um, and then sometimes the cost, uh, having to pay for another prescription. A lot of these patients are not working um, and have a hard time being able to afford these medications. So, you know, working with social work and navigation and um, centers to get patients to be able to afford their medications. So why is this so problematic? Uh, I think, you know, oral medications, they require less oversight. So they're no longer in clinic weekly or biweekly getting their chemotherapy infusions. Uh, symptom control monitoring is not um, as strict and there's less support uh, than standard chemo infusions, leaving room for patients to miss doses and not stay as adherent to their treatment regimens. There is no real established protocol for monitoring adverse effects. So it really is, um, you know, clinician based. And uh, I know that after really getting to know this set of patients, I truly know that they can get through medication, but that's not without um, our support in the clinic. So I follow these patients really closely. Um, and that is, you know, timely, especially when you have other patients in clinic. Uh, lack of patient education, again, not knowing why they're on this medication, um, poor communication with the healthcare provider, and just patients who have a history of non-adherence. We all know those patients who, you know, don't finish their antibiotics. So um, making sure that we tell them that this medication needs to be taken to work. So what can we do? Uh, we can develop a strict and detailed patient monitoring plan. Um, I now in clinic have a spreadsheet of all the patients that Dr. Dizon puts on a PARP inhibitor. I follow those patients really closely. Um, I usually have a one week follow-up with them after initiating a PARP. Um, and at that one week follow-up, I confirm that the patient correctly understands how to take the medication. I tell them how, you know, to explain to me, how are they taking the medication? Uh, and I have very close follow-up with these patients for, um, for assessing adherence and side effect management. And, you know, at each appointment visit or telephone visit, uh, including how to overcome the common bar barriers of these medications that lead to misdoses. So these side effects that we talked about um, and how to manage them. Uh, staying in close contact with the patient can be uh, easy now with patient portal and patient having use of the cell phone. I tend to send them a quick little, you know, one sentence. How are you doing? Are things better? Are you tolerating the medication? Um, and patients like that, you know, you don't have to stay on the phone with them. They don't have to come in. They don't have to pay for a visit. So it's another attractive way to keep track of these patients. Um, providing frequent reassurance that patients can always call you at any time for advice, calling the 1-800 number, uh, that we provide to patients with a 24-hour service, um, making sure that they know how to reach us at any time, any day. Uh, treatment calendars and pill boxes I find really effective for patients. And sometimes, you know, they don't know about these things unless you tell them. Um, and then positive reinforcements for the patients who, you know, are doing a great job and like they need that little um, motivation to keep going. And then patients who have missed or canceled the patient uh, appointments should be contacted before refilling them. This way we keep a close eye on these people. So um, some take home thoughts, um, the use of PARP in the maintenance setting has been uh, transformative. PARP inhibitors have revolutionized care and expanded many treatment options in ovarian cancer. 
with available resources, uh, the APPs can assist patients to promote oral adherence, which is um, very important. Typically, toxicity is easily managed with supportive care and dose reductions. Uh, appropriate counseling should be provided before starting treatment to manage expectations of both the patient and caregivers uh, to prevent treatment interruption or premature discontinuation of these drugs. And in the end, establishing trust and communication, providing support and education, and instituting effective treatment plans and effective follow-ups all help us um, ensure adherence to these drugs. Thank you so much. That was great. All right, so, um, okay. So let me just uh, throw this out in terms of a few questions for us to consider. And then actually, these are things that Shannon that I've, I've actually thought about myself uh, and certainly Christine and I have talked about too. When it comes to the patient with a high-grade serous carcinoma, but is stage two, are you using a PARP inhibitor in those folks? I haven't seen a stage two ovarian cancer in <laughs> the last five years. Really? So if you were to see someone with stage two, to... <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, that's all to say I hadn't thought about it, but yeah. I would, I think you can derive like, you know, how we are, we're yeah. like, oh, well, IP chemo is good for stage three. So we'll do it for stage two, too. Right, right, right. I think there's clinical rationale. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, especially with the, the more advanced not advanced, but given that we're treating people with stage two disease, not like early stage these days, yeah. you know, understanding that um, uh, the trials did not enroll people with stage three or four disease. I think that's a, that's a pretty relevant um, point to make. Um, in terms of your use, so now we have this data sets for primary maintenance and then uh, maintenance for platinum sensitive relapse. Um, uh, what is your comment about reuse? So say someone was on a PARP inhibitor after upfront treatment relapses 12 months after the prior platinum. Are you utilizing PARP a second time as uh, maintenance in, in that context? Um, I will, let me first say that it like in the deep dive and I don't think in any of the, the data I demonstrated, but in some of the studies, they have included patients with prior PARP. Um, and so like the deep dive subset analyses of like, what's the one that starts with P? I don't remember, but- Paola one, but, there's a Paola. Yeah, yeah. Paola Zopkinis. There, there's, there's enough that ASCO recommends against it. Yeah, but, yeah, I would agree with you there. You know, that, that you know, the, the, the data is really use it in this setting or in this setting, but we don't have the data. If they progressed in this setting, you can use an alternative part in the second setting. I don't think that don't data think is out there yet. Yeah, um, and I, I don't think we have a reason to think that one PARP inhibitor is going to work differently mm -hmm. than a different PARP inhibitor. Yeah, um, at least not right now. <laughs> yeah, given the options for recurrent ovary now, yeah. um, I'd much rather put them on a trial. Mm -hmm. So the last question I think for you, Shannon, that I, I have, and then um, I have a couple for Christine, but um, this comes up a lot for particularly for people who don't treat ovary. If you are treating someone on a PARP inhibitor and they relapse, where do you start counting the treatment-free or the platinum-free interval? Is it from the last date of the PARP or the last date of the platinum? funny, I like just had this conversation with the patient this yeah. week. Um, and for me, I look at were they disease free when they started the part? Um, and if they had like, if they had a partial response and mm -hmm. then progressed on the PARP, I sort of feel like that speaks more to platinum resistance mm -hmm. than if they had a complete response and we're on part maintenance and recurred. Well, I think that's a really interesting way. Christine, I know, do you, do you have any thoughts on that question? Chris? No, no. no. <laughs> well, I'm you know, no, it's interesting. I actually never thought of what is the, what was the status of disease at the end of platinum? I think that's a very good way to think about it. Um, I think when I, when I think about it, it's more about when was the last platinum? And since we don't know what the contribution was to, of, of PARPs to 
platinum sensitivity, I tend to discount it. But I think you actually are right. There's a nuance to this because we can use a part in people who are not in CR, you know, and if there's yeah. growth of disease while you're in the part, that may speak to more platinum resistance. I actually like that, that answer quite a bit. Thank you. The other, the other thing I have to say in full disclosure is most of my prescribing habits for CARP are driven by Medicaid and managed care. Yeah. Yeah. Which doesn't always allow for those nuances. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, see, I see that as well. And certainly that's something that Christine in my own clinic works a lot on is sort of prior authorization. And let's see how we can get these things because oftentimes you know, she'll be the first one to hear. It's like, they can get it, but the co-pay is $1,000. So okay. we need to try to work on this. You know, so Christine, Shannon's population is an inner city, Chicago, a huge migrant population. And I'm sort of thinking about our folks and we've treated a wide mm -hmm. range of people on park inhibitors. Tell me about a little bit about your strategy and deal in um, managing people with park inhibitors who, whose English is not their first language. Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I do uh, really rely on family, I have to say, um, to help us, you know, kind of understand, um, you know, what these patients need to know about these medications. I mean, of course, we have interpretive services and a lot of that language lines, but I think patients really respond better to family members who are supportive and are going to be there, you know, to help them mitigate side effects at home. Um, I think even, you know, during the pandemic, when patients' families weren't allowed, I always uh, tried to uh, call them on FaceTime even, or had them on the line. Um, and I think having their family members really understand these side effects, not just the patient, and, you know, when to call us, how to, you know, help um, them take the medication every single day, you know, continuously is really important. I just really think like keeping a really close eye on these patients is key and it is really time consuming, um, especially when you have, you know, other patients who are in clinic um, getting IV chemo and coming in for sick visits. I think sometimes these patients get a little bit lost. Mm -hmm. um, so I really am pretty diligent about calling them. Um, and, you know, I tell them all the time, like, we're going to be best friends for a really long time, hopefully. Uh, so, you know, they expect your call and I, I just think they do better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the one thing uh, that um, came out in your presentation is this idea of ownership, not owning the patient, but owning the program. We're going to have an oral maintenance program and ovarian cancer. Someone needs to own this. And certainly at our center, that's Christine. And she has colleagues when she's not around, she can have the, you know, she can pass this on to, but I mean, how are you guys handling um, sort of um, adherence maintenance? Similarly, I'd say um, mirroring the diverse population is also the, a diverse staff. So um, we have the blessing of Spanish-speaking pharmacists who do most of it. So let me just tell you a secret, because UIC pharmacy is like a top 10 pharmacy school, yeah. and they... So honestly, it's our specialty pharmacy who does this. Wow. Um, and they communicate directly with the patients, which I think, I mean, I would say it's best practice. We see it with opioids also in um, getting patient-facing pharmacists to really do the counseling mm -hmm. um, is impactful. Um, the other thing I would say is that I am really liberal with dose reductions. Like, sure. Um, my, my approach to shared decision-making has become much more uh, leaning much more towards the patient calling the shots and not trying yeah. to convince them. But to be honest, like, as I was hearing about like struggling with side effects, I, I really like my patients on parts, love their parts. Um, and they manage to get their supply from the pharmacy before they go to Mexico and then they come back and, um, it's, you know, unless I, I've boxed some kidneys and I, you know, yeah, yeah. But, um, but from the patient's standpoint, they really love their, they really love it. Well, that's yeah, great. I, I mean, go ahead, Christine. 
Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I don't think we see many patients like self discontinue uh, parts. You know, I feel like all of our patients who, um, you know, are prescribed the medication do tend to stay on it and, you know, take it. I think in the beginning it is, you know, it's harder because of those side effects that we see typically in the beginning. And that's when I feel like that first month is so important. So even if we're bringing them in for a weekly um, CBC checks, that's usually when I make sure that the following week, you know, I follow them. So every single Thursday when I'm in clinic, you know, I make sure that they have a follow-up appointment just by phone even. Um, but I do think that, like you said, patients do love being on this medication because, you know, it's easy, it's accessible, you can take it from home, you don't have to come into the clinic. Um, but I do think the first month, at least the patients that we have right now have had a bumpy road, but then they do post. So I think that that's important mm -hmm. to understand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, prefacing it, what I liked about what you said, Christina, is sort of this idea that although it's an oral therapy, you won't feel well, it will be treatment, yeah. you are on treatment going forward. And I think adopting that idea, and having your patients understand that idea is critical, as well as to the adherence. So thank you very much for joining me too. This is wonderful. Thank you. And it's nice to spending the hour with you guys.